good people this is bhavna from fii and uh, today i'm going to talk about a topic that i'm very interested in it is uh, the topic of prostitution and i'm going to talk about prostitution in india um it's history it's something that i've uh, worked on a little bit and uh, i feel fairly confident of my sources of information on the issue and i thought i'd share it with you so um one of the oldest tropes about prostitution is uh, calling it the oldest profession in the world and uh, uh, very interestingly you know most of the conversations about prostitution uh, in india uh, talk about focus on especially in the in the legal sector uh, deal with the um, you know the immoral trafficking prevention act and the uh, perhaps the suppression of immoral trafficking act um and uh, a discussion of uh, the various strands of feminist thought that are in argument over whether prostitution should be abolished or should it be taken as a fait accompli uh, and minimized and regulated so that the implications on the health of the prostitute is minimized or that prostitution should be legalized so that the prostitute gets access to resources and access to justice um in order to truly get under the skin of this law um though it is imperative to look at the historical circumstances of its birth um because uh, you know as this really bright woman uh, laura nader says uh, law is not just reflective of but very intrinsically tied to implicit social assumptions and we need to consider its social and cultural organization its origin and therefore in order to understand what the legal framework of prostitution in india is um it is important to understand uh, what is the question like who is the prostitute in india and uh, whether or not she is a woman in the context of uh, uh, who the new indian woman uh, is like what is the identity of the new indian woman Uh, and when i talk about the new indian woman i am talking about the new indian woman around the time of uh, indian independence not contemporary um women in india because you know <laughs> as little of a monolith uh, the new indian woman of the um well of the independent era is uh, uh, the new indian woman of today's time period is uh, quite quite well non monolithic and it's pretty uh, well dangerous to talk about uh, the new indian woman today anyway after that aside um so um here's what right uh, if you if you look at uh, this paper by dr usha ramanathan uh, she talks about how the um, the court uh, prior to british uh, indian independence um how the court has dealt with prostitutes and she traces all of these judgments that have talked about prostitutes or have talked about women in prostitution or have referred to prostitution and uh she says that it was not paternal protection or admonition that reached the woman in prostitution she may not find herself silenced into pa- into a passivity which is the con- which is a consistent condition of the wife there is instead a certain agency recognized in her interaction with law and with the state perhaps there other than ordinariness when the court referred to dancing women or ordinary hindus and their identity as a separate class having a legal status gave them a position that was denied to the wife in the arena of the law 
So Ushramanathan's case, right, the idea that she pro- she proposes is that the uh, only woman in the three decades before Indian independence who was not dismissed as a dependent and whose agency was explicitly recognized in her interactions with the state was the woman who was engaged in prostitution. Um, so it's very interesting because I'm trying to understand, I was trying to understand, uh, still am, about who is this good woman who the law is seeking to shape against the bad woman. And um, so uh, in the eyes of the Indian, of the women's movement at the time of the Indian independence nationalist movement, um, as far as the nationalist movement was concerned, the resolution of the woman's question was complete. Because the women's, uh, the voices of women's rights during the nationalist movement in India um, only addressed, and very incompletely, the question of women who were not upper caste uh, and upper class Hindu and Muslim women. Not uh, like so. Not only did the in, did India's women's rights champions reject special privileges and reservations for women, with disdain for the narrow demands of the suffragists. They did so with the honest assumption that they were representative of the demands of Indian women. So um, even though various uh, political views countered the predominance of the upper caste in shaping India's national movement and our constitution, um, the same is not uh, something that can be said of the women's of women's issues. Right, because uh, the Arya Samaj reformers not only did not represent all women, and they were they were the strongest voice in reforming uh, Hinduism, and and obviously the role of women in, in Hinduism was very um, you know prominent. So uh, they denied the Arya Samaj denied to most women representative power as women by locating them outside the sphere of what was womanhood. Um, they were women. Mm, so essentially they refused to locate them outside the sphere of uh, womanhood uh, because uh, they were all women who needed to be saved they were people who needed to be rescued and they were people who needed care and protection and correction um and um so it's you know going a little further back in history um Raja Ram Mohan Roy and others who created the imagination of the golden age of Hinduism that preceded the arrival of Islam in India um they also attributed the arrival to the arrival of Islam the degenerate state of the Hindu culture which meets uh, the British when they arrive in India um and uh, apparently you know when um, James Mill published his history of British India, which was a very influential work in uh, um, in shaping the views of uh, the British colonialists towards India, uh, they it suggested uh, the history of British India suggested uh, that uh, the reduced status of women drew not from the Muslim rule, but in fact was a product of the spirit of Hindu society, where women were constantly kept segregated from the men deprived of education and property and made to eat separately. Um, James Mill's book uh, caused, obviously, a lot of outrage, especially in the um, in the eyes of the Indian intelligentsia, who 
you know, thought that this was a major misrepresentation of uh, the Indian woman. And so they, uh, you know, created this uh, narrative of uh, the Aryan woman as a glorified helpmate uh, in order to respond to these uh, these uh, misconceptions of uh, well, of, of women, of women's roles in Indian, of, or in, in Hindu society. So this woman, this new um, Indian woman, would keep the flame of uh, nationalism burning uh, alongside her role and her duty as a husband's helper. She would be given due respect as a mother and a wife and due protection as a daughter of India, her dignity intact. Um, a very interesting case would be uh, Rabindranath Tagore's uh, character Bimla in Ghare Baire, The Home and the World, um, Gharen Bahar, whose uh, internal conflict very skillfully brings out this dichotomy of the two zones. You know, the woman's rights as an individual uh, subsumed by the woman's role as a manifestation of Bharat Mata, you know, Mother India, uh, within this nationalist imagination. Uh, the stronghold of Indian culture and Indianness had to be protected where it could be protected. It could be protected only within the ghar, within the home, and there it had to be protected within the body and, you know, the manifestation of everything that the body of the woman was. So, um, you know, once uh, once India adopted the Western concept of nationalism and, uh, um, you know, how that uh, looked at, how that also shaped uh, a new space for, uh, they also, they also absorbed the idea of sexuality from Victorian England and, and, uh, you know, I mean, at its core, nationalism is a somewhat uh, uh, sexist concept. Though, I mean, that's debatable because uh, different countries do look upon their nation state as mother or father, but it, it inspires similar instincts of either obedience or protection, right, which is within the patriarchal framework in any case. So um, the impulse to control female purity and chastity as the last, uh, as the last, uh, you know, the, the last stronghold of Indianness uh, was very great. And uh, this came to represent not just the purity of Indian culture, but also this uh, the Indian culture's superiority to the culture that the British Empire, you know, stood for or their culture. So um, by the end of the 20th century, mainstream women, the identity of mainstream uh, women in India had started to sort of go along the lines of the Aryan values uh, especially with the, uh, you know, along with other aspects of cultural nationalism. And uh, an Aryanness, the Aryan woman, this idea of this Aryan woman became a very strong part of the Indian national movement also. Um, Charu Gupta, uh, another historian, writes about uh, how the Indian woman was invested with new values, at once nationalist and Hindu. The image of wom of women as sexual beings was replaced by a passionless ideal of womanhood. Passionless in the sense of, you know, sex, sexless in that sense, like not inspiring, you know, well, uh, sex-related uh, thoughts. So uh, the passionless idea of womanhood to counter the colonial designations of derelict sexuality. 
because that was the aspersion cast on hindu hindu you know relation the the status of uh, hindu women in india so um, uh, this feminine idea ideal involved um, a restraint and a suppression of pleasure um, and these were ideas that uh, prostitutes who were not who were you know who weren't uh, women who live fit inside the ghar the ghar uh the home these were they were public women and they could not they wouldn't be able to fit within these ideas with this idea of you know uh, a passionless woman after all a, a non sexual being because uh, by the very nature of their uh, uh, their occupation so um as as can be understandable this uh, the rise of the aryan woman also corresponded with a with a distancing between uh, with with a, with a loss of status of uh, of prostitutes in uh, in india at that point of time um so prostitutes in bengali society in colonial india uh, can be viewed from three different perspectives one is from the point of view of the bhadralok and the respectability movements uh, the second is the i the point of view of the british administration and uh, thirdly it's the prostitutes themselves so i mean i don't know why i'm going with that thirdly not you know, last but not the least the through the points of view of the prostitutes themselves so um uh, so if looking at it from the bhadralok uh, respectability movement uh, um in pre colonial bengal prostitution was considered a sin but it wasn't a legal offense uh there were hierarchies within prostitutes which divided them into the categories of tawaif talaki uh, randi and khangi tawaifs were usually high class singer entertainers who catered to the highest elite of the land um the common prostitutes who were the randis or the khangis mainly provided sexual services and they were viewed by society as a means of purifying towns maintaining moral order and as outlets for men's sexual drive um simultaneously within the aspiring middle classes of colonial bombay the respectability movement began and they frowned upon practices that were perceived as immoral such as uh, nach uh, very interestingly um as a an aside my grandmother tells me about how she really wanted to learn to dance but uh, being an upper caste hindu woman Uh, the idea that she would be taught dancing or singing was just reprehensible these were things that you know immoral women did uh, you couldn't you couldn't teach respectable girls from respectable families such arts um so you know yeah and and that's kind of that that's a pretty common perception uh, uh, in most uh, in a lot of in a lot of well upper caste families i think uh, I, at risk of generalizing over generalizing uh so the society's reactions towards prostitutes in colonial india um occurred parallel to the attempts of uh, upper caste hindus to regulate the behavior of upper caste women whether it is the women's language the way they you know express uh, revelry and festivity uh, whether it was their marriage or how they conduct themselves um and it was all you know robbed of sexual flavor um so uh, and uh, such the practices of married married men keeping mistresses 
attending performances of Natch girls, all of these started getting discouraged. And the status of uh, Kalavantins, the Natch girls, was uh, comprehensively undermined by rising education in women. Um, so, uh, you know, that was that's the you know that's the point of view of the the you know, the effect that the Bhadralok uh, respectability movement had on uh, the status of prostitutes. um specifically in colonial bengal um focusing continue to focus on bengal uh, very interestingly um from the point of view of the british cantonment acts right so uh, the there were these uh, um, legislations that controlled prostitution uh, i was just uh, i was recently listening to an uh, episode of qi um, this is about engineering and uh, uh, Alan, oh, what's his name, was referring to, was joking um, to Stephen Fry. And he says, uh, um, you know, what is it? Why do the British, wherever we go, the first thing we do, hey, there's a train. Where are the prostitutes? Um, I don't know. There's clearly some sort of a linkage between uh, regulating prostitution, making prostitution available and, uh, well, the British Empire. So, um the heralding the beginning of uh, controlling prostitution via legislations the cantonment acts of uh, 1857 were promulgated and these were uh, in a category of uh, these fall under the category of uh, sanitary legislations right uh, they were ostensibly and essentially designed to counteract the spread of venereal diseases by the sexual contact of british soldiers who were stationed in india with low end prostitutes a large number of prostitutes who operated outside the cantonment areas were unregistered and unaccountable and these were a threat to the british order because you know they could potentially cause an outbreak of venereal disease within the cantonments so a detailed system was worked out for registering them inspecting them detaining them in hospitals if they contracted venereal disease and for that uh, lal bazaars yes red light streets were established as brothel areas in regimented cantonments and uh, several contagious diseases acts were passed and uh, lock hospitals you know secluded isolated what do you call them uh, i remember any written books used to call it coventry when you something like a i don't know an isolation of sorts um when you know if if you contracted a venereal disease uh, i, I the word slips my brain right now um so in bengal the Conto- the contagious diseases acts went beyond uh, you know just confining cantonments uh, to uh, went beyond the confines of the cantonments uh, all the way to the red light areas outside because they were afraid that uh, british soldiers could get infected by common prostitutes Uh, which is when these common prostitutes are distinct from captive regimental prostitutes who were essentially uh, created by the cantonment act right so there are all these illegal prostitutes and there are these legalized prostitutes not illegal illegal is the is a very wrong word uh, extra legal they are they are beyond the you know unregulated prostitutes essentially um so the shifting terrain of uh, of old courtesans in uh, in very interesting right um within uh, with uh, post mutiny the mutiny of uh, 
of uh, you know the in the indian soldier sepoy mutiny um the nawabi lucknow uh, in nawabi lucknow there a lot of uh, british policies and legislations concerning regulating sanitizing and cleaning the city happened okay and um uh, and and these were essentially for uh relocating uh, old courtesans from the centers of the city so they were slowly 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 shifted to a more outlying areas uh, because there'd be all these regulations about how a prostitute cannot uh, be uh, set up prostitutes cannot you know stay within this distance of um these spaces so that they wouldn't get you know they they wouldn't um, get interact with the with the prostitutes who were uh, created in these uh, prostitutes who were part of the captive regimental prostitutes as referred to earlier right these these uh, brothel areas the lal bazaars so those were the regimented prostitutes right so in order to ensure that there was a separation between the two um, unregulated prostitutes the courtesans essentially right the higher end the more the kalavantins uh, and that category of of women who were essentially masters of their own destiny um, and persons in their own you know legal rights were um, sort of pushed out and and had to leave uh, places and mahals that were that had been given to them uh for them to stay at the for a really long time essentially their historic homes and um yeah and and these found a lot of support uh, by the common people because as mentioned earlier there was a let's say there was a uh, gentrification movement that was going on like a a bhadralok uh, movement that was going on so and bhadralok within the bengal context within nawabi lucknow it was you know called a completely different thing that i don't remember at this moment so um as uh, you know I, i there was an imaginary drum roll before i said uh, lal bazaar because these lal bazaars are what turned into the red light districts of sonagachi in kolkata and kamathipura in mumbai which you know are some of the largest led red light districts probably in the world and um, there are i mean today th- there are certain organizations that have organized sex workers uh, within these spaces and um, are doing a lot of good work in 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 trying to create a certain uh, stability and uh, and and security in the lives of the women who work in these areas but um yeah i mean they've uh, they've they've been a, they are a byproduct of uh, colonial uh, legislations so um an interesting anecdote in the history of the of legislating prostitutes is this bill for the suppression of immoral trafficking and this was introduced in the madras legislature so you know we covered bengal we covered lucknow now we coming to madras legislature and this was introduced by kr venkata ramana iyer and uh, it was seconded by a dr muthulakshmi reddy um she subsequently moved the bill for suppression of immoral trafficking in 1927 in order to prohibit uh, immoral traffic uh, so this this bill was uh, supposed to give more powers to the police in order to effectively stop the practice of the devdasi system right um and dr reddy proposed two important modifications to the bill she wanted the term prostitute to be redefined so as to cover both men and women and she demanded that the men who either abetted or lived off the earnings of a prostitute should also be punished 
both of these amendments were discarded and the and the bill became an act in January 1930 but its scope was limited to Madras and similar acts were subsequently passed by both the Bombay and the Bengal legislatures and uh, finally uh, post independence the 1956 suppression of immoral traffic in women and girls act was passed um this was a direct outcome of the international convention for the suppression of traffic in persons and of the exploitation of prostitution 1950 and it was uh, pretty much uh, in consonance with the terms of this international convention because uh, uh well you know rescue and vigilance work was going on in uh, full swing and further amendments were proposed uh, uh, to the SITA and finally in uh, 1954 the bill was produced introduced in the parliament and in 1958 it became an act um and uh, in 1975 there was a law commission report on the suppression of immoral traffic in women and girls and uh, 1975 was also declared by the united nations as the international women's year and uh, the law commission report refers to prostitution as a social evil and it refers to the perceived threat of prostitution to family and marriage so uh, the law commission report says that the institution of prostitution is the external manifestation of the failure of man to control his animal will within the limits set by the institution of marriage the act uh, it says is for the suppression of immoral traffic and any measure prohibiting prostitution will be beyond its scope so um you know that was that Uh, and then um, the SITA was subsequently amended first it was in 1978 and 1986 it became uh, the immoral trafficking prevention act and this is a uh, more tolerationist version of the anti prostitution position uh, because it recognizes the right to engage in sexual transactions in private uh, and accepts prostitution as a necessary evil and it decriminalizes the prostitute herself uh subsequent amendments have changed the definition of prostitution to uh the sexual exploitation or abuse of persons so this makes this law gender neutral in letter even if it is not uh, gender neutral in application um and uh, you know fulfilling dr reddy's uh, proposal in 1927 um so under the suppression of immoral trafficking act sex work is not illegal in itself but uh, it's the activities that surround the third party involvement such as soliciting brothel keeping living off the earnings of prostitution and procuring which are all illegal and punishable offenses so the practice of sex work becomes illegal soliciting and practicing prostitution in a public place are also illegal um and section 7 is clearly you know another zoning legislation much like the cantonment acts um that were created by the british and the municipal laws that uh, you know that that essentially zoned and restricted the mobility of prostitutes um within certain geographical limits so um obviously in any conversation about uh, prostitution in india or well, probably elsewhere in the definitely the third world cannot uh, happen without talking about uh, the debates around uh, the threat of hiv aids which happened in the early 1990s and uh, by towards the close of 1990, 1997 to be precise the sex workers manifesto appeared right 
and this was uh, this happened uh, coincide coinciding with the healthcare programs that were carried out in sonagachi kolkata uh, for the prevention of hiv aids um so the state intervened in brothels um, and they said it was for purely health reasons and um you know so slowly essentially as a result of these uh, programs a certain amount of greater autonomy was uh, you know was re was handed over again to the hands of of sex workers and you know the manifesto says things like uh, uh, we shall uh, you know take contraception into our own hands and uh, have a right to health and healthcare and things like that right access to um uh, state provided resources and um it, it's a, it's a beautiful text and you should check it out so um very interestingly there have been some uh, recent changes uh in the indian laws on trafficking right because and and i'm talking about trafficking because uh, sex work and trafficking have constantly been playing along with each other like the initial legislation post independence did not cover sex work it only covered trafficking right and uh, subsequently the same law was amended to make it into a law that governs prostitution so the distinction between the two is kind of blurry um and the uh, there in a 2013 amendment uh, that happened to the uh, indian penal code that's india's criminal law um it's major criminal law which lists down what makes a what makes something an offense you know essentially what all is an offense in india right a criminal offense um that has it has replaced the earlier section 370 which was uh, i could you not buying or disposing of any person as a slave with uh, the section 370 called trafficking of a person and consequently it has brought the indian code you know more in line with today's times and um, this is more significant since the existing statute on combating trafficking is the immoral trafficking prevention act and this does not deal adequately with trafficking for purposes other than sexual exploitation and trafficking for you know labor exploitation social exploitation is rampant in several parts of india um there's an organization that i briefly worked with uh, which is called international justice mission and they have you know some resources that you could potentially check out um just plugging them for no good reason um it is uh, so it's very interesting because uh, you know for um, it was an attempt of protect it was in the attempt to protect uh, women from harm uh, from prostitutes that uh, these uh, that these laws and these uh, you know that that the state stepped in like it's very interesting because they are essentially looking at how um prostitutes affect women by women you are talking about you know married women who are in um marital relations with men who frequent you know brothels and uh, so you're kind of creating this dichotomy of sorts like you're setting up one kind of woman against another kind of woman and how you know and, and how one you we have to control and regulate um one kind of woman in order to protect uh, the other kind of woman <laughs> i guess why say was all right uh, so the protection of women's agency has been uh, one of the most important goals of a, of of the women's movements uh, and uh, 
well at least uh, for the feminist movement and um, it's in, it's interesting because uh, you know this 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 space where um, we're where we're setting uh, women up against each other where there's a good woman and there's a uh, there's a good way of being able to be a woman and there is a um there is this uh, bad woman of sorts who has uh, like it's very interesting because in the case law that for example usha ramanathan documents um they they treat women as legal persons the prostitutes as legal persons which is not a um an honor that is given to married women to you know daughters of uh, of uh, good families uh, quote unquote uh, and um Uh, who have to constantly be in, be presented through proxy right uh, no married woman no good daughter um is ever uh, is ever a person in her own right who can ever speak for herself and if you were to just read the indian penal code it is rampant with sections that talk about uh, which which kind of which which talk about the woman as though she has no agency of her own and um you have to talk to you know her guardians speak for her her brother or her father and it's not just the ipc right the court's interpretations are uh, also of that well also present the same perspective anyway that's a conversation for another time i hope you uh, found this uh, this historical background of uh, prostitution in india as interesting as i find it and uh, learn something that you know you'll come back to again um hope you have a good day i suppose um cheerios <laughs>